You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we're breaking down the new and improved UFC 249 card, including all prelims and the main card alike, including three, yes, three championship title fights, which include the Women's Featherweight Championship of the World as the reigning defending double champ Amanda the Lioness Nunes defends against top contender Felicia Spencer. Then, in the co-main event of the evening, for the Men's Bantamweight Championship of the World, we have the former reigning defending undisputed Bantamweight greatest of all time, Dominic the Dominator Cruz, going up against the current double champ, or formerly double champ, but you, you know him as Triple C, that is Henry Triple C Cejudo. And then, in the main event of the evening, for the reigning defending interim lightweight champion of the world, it is the most title defenses for an interim championship, Tony Elkakui Ferguson versus top contender, Justin, the highlight Gaethje. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. Hey guys, how's everybody doing tonight? Like I said, we've got a lot to go over, including the uh, entire card for UFC 249 or now known as UFC 250. And uh, I kind of contradicted myself in that intro, but I had to go along with it. Um, they actually, Amanda Nunes is not going to be fighting on May 9th anymore, so there is only two title fights now, and the Women's Featherweight Championship of the World will not be defended. She pulled out of the fight. Um, she said she might be ready to go by June. I don't really know what a month's difference is going to make in this current time. I mean, you're either ready or you're not. I'm not, you know discrediting Amanda Nunes. She's one of the best, if not the best women's, you know, mixed martial artists of all time. But I, I just think like a month in this current climate, it's not really going to help you too much. I mean, unless she's got an injury or something and she has something she needs to take care of, I get it. And, and I get it either way because, you know, I don't think I would want to fight in the current times right now with the coronavirus going around. So, you know, props to her. Hopefully she comes back and, you know, better than ever. And, you know, we'll see what happens when she comes back. But now, like I said, um, there's only two title fights. Now the men's bantamweight championship of the world between the current reigning defending triple C Henry Cejudo and the former bantamweight champion, greatest of all time, Dominic, the dominator Cruz. And then the Ferguson and Gaethje fight. Um, yeah, so I'm going to be doing that. We'll be breaking down this card um, from top to bottom, which is probably going to take two parts by itself, probably an hour on this card just because of how good the, the card is in general. And then we're going to go into the top 15 ranked UFC lightweight fighters. So every, the top 15 in the lightweight division, I'm going to give you my fights to make with that top 15 and a few guys outside of the top 15. Um, just that, that lightweight division is so stacked and I figured what a better time to uh, save fights that should happen when we're not really getting fights. And like I said, um, if you looked at my social media before I posted this episode, this is the first time we've broken down a fight card in a month. I mean, this is obviously I did predictions for UFC 249 when it was going to happen on the 18th, which would have been two days ago. Um, it obviously didn't go down like that. I saw something on Twitter that said UFC 250, uh, 249, 250, UFC Lincoln and UFC... Um, what was it? There was one more. One more UFC fight on May 16th. Oh, San Diego. Those were all canceled. Um, but based on what I've seen being posted on social media lately, it looks like that's just like a announcement 
normally and that UFC 250 is still a go, even though we don't know where the fight is taking place. So, yeah, I mean, it, I thought it was canceled and I almost wasn't going to uh, put out this episode. I was only going to do the top 15 and then the fights to make for them. But uh, I guess I think it's still a go for um, May 9th. So we're going to keep it rolling and keep this podcast going and get it out to everybody who really doesn't have anything to do right now because of the quarantine. So let's start it off. Let's start it off. We can't be wasting no time because we got a lot of fights to cover. And first up on the prelims in the featherweight division, we've got Thug Nasty Bryce Mitchell, who's 12-1 and overall in mixed martial arts and 3-0 and in the UFC, versus Charles Boston Strong Rosa, who's 12-3 and overall and 3-3 and in the UFC. You know, this is a good fight to open up the card. I know Bryce Mitchell. I've seen him fight before, obviously, one of the only, the second fighter in UFC history to pull off a twister submission. So if you haven't seen what a twister submission is, it's basically when you have your opponent in like a half guard position, but you're on their back or you're like close to their back. You take their one arm, which is going to be the arm closest to you. You put it behind your head. You reach, uh, you reach underneath the neck with the arm that's closest to their arm that you put around their back or around your back, you reach around the other side, lock up either a bicep grab, like a rear naked choke, or grab your grab your hands in like a gable grip position. You pull their head one way, and you push with your hips and twist, and uh, it's a very, very painful submission. We've worked on it in my training, um, but obviously, you know, when you're training that type of submission that's so dangerous, when it has to do with twisting the spine and, and everything like that. You have to be very careful. So uh, hopefully I never get put in one. And uh, I mean, I'm hoping I never have to put one in somebody in a twister either. So yeah, but uh, for him to do that, the only other guy to do that was the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung against Leonard Garcia. So that's a big feat for him. And uh, yeah, he's really good. And when it comes to Charles Boston, strong Rosa, both of these guys are very good on the ground. Um, uh, Bryce Mitchell is very good on the top and very good on the bottom. He he has a great guard, a really good ground, uh, guard game. He likes to uh, throw up arm bars, throw up triangles. Um, he'll he'll catch you in really awkward positions. And one thing about him is when he hits the ground, he never stops moving. Whether it's in top position, he'll go from half guard to side control to the mount or transition. Or if he's on the bottom, he'll always be throwing up arm bars, throwing up triangles, going for omoplatas. Um, the, the, he kind of reminds me, of a little bit less technical Charles Oliveira on the ground and a little bit like, uh, I don't know on the feet because he's very awkward on the feet. He's a Southpaw, but he will switch to Orthodox every once in a while. He has a very strong, uh, overhand left and he likes to throw. He has good, uh, inside and outside low kicks for the opponent that I think will work pretty good against Charles Rosa. Um, Rosa's decent on the feet. Um, but a lot of his his wins and stuff come from ground control and uh, if he's able to catch you in a submission. Um, I believe he caught Manny Bermudez in a submission not too long ago, and he was a very good um, decorated jiu-jitsu artist. He was able to catch him in an arm bar. So it shows that he is dangerous off his back, but going up against a guy like Thug Nasty, Bryce Mitchell, you don't want to play on the ground at all. I mean, I know that Charles Rosa is good, but I don't think he's good enough to hang around with Bryce Mitchell on the on the floor. Um, I think that he'll be throwing up submissions every you know at every chance he gets. I think on the feet, they're both. Neither of them are are really technical in their striking. But if I have to give a slight advantage, I'd give it to Bryce Mitchell just because he does turn over his punches pretty well. 
he'll uh, and what what anybody means if you if you're like a novice fan when you say turn over your punches it's when instead of just going straight on and hitting with your knuckles it's when you take when you twist your hand right at right before you make the impact and you hit with the first two knuckles on your hand which are the uh, hardest part of your that's the hardest part of your hand and hitting with those two knuckles is going to make it harder for you to break your hand. And that's a big injury that happens in a lot of combat sports, you know, boxing, the boxers fracture and uh, MMA alike. A lot of people break their hands. I mean, Uriah Faber fought for a world title when he, and he broke both of his hands. He had to throw elbows and knees. I believe that was against Ten and Burrell, but, uh, yeah, that's just that's just the name of the game, and that's what happens. But I just think Bryce Mitchell is too dangerous for Charles Rosa on the floor, and I expect him to catch him in a submission. I think it'll be close for the first round, round and a half, and then I think Bryce Mitchell towards the second round will uh, gain a lot of control on the ground and eventually lock up. I'll go with uh, I'll go with the triangle. I think he's going to lock up a triangle. I saw in one of his previous fights he almost had his opponent in a perfect triangle. He turned the corner, got the angle. And uh, it was very close to getting the submission, but the opponent got out. And uh, that's another thing with triangle chokes is, you know, it, it's very hard. I mean, you can get a, a triangle from just sitting, having somebody in the garden, you know, you take the arm, you put it across, put it across to the other side, and then you lock up the triangle and pull down on the head. But it's better to get the angle. So you grab the head, you, you lock the triangle up, but you turn your body to the side that um, to the opposite side of where your legs are locked, where the figure four is, and you turn that way and you keep turning and turning and turning and it's almost like a twisting effect and it makes the triangle a lot tighter and cuts off any additional space that would be in between the opponent's head and arm and your legs. But yeah, I got to go with Thug Nasty Bryce Mitchell. Like I said, probably a second round submission by triangle choke. Up next in the welterweight division, it is the silent assassin, Vicente Luque, who holds a record of 17 wins, 7 losses, and 1 no contest overall in mixed martial arts, but a very impressive record of 10 wins and 2 losses inside of the UFC. And he's facing off against Nico the Hybrid Price, who holds a record of 14-3 and overall in professional mixed martial arts, but a record of 6-3 and in the UFC. Um, this is a, a fight that I like to call, you know, violence personified. It, it, it's just going to be a war. There's no way, there's no way around it. That's just how the fight's going to play out. And when you look at a guy like Vicente Luque, he has very, very crisp hands. His kicks are very good as well. He has really good inside and outside low kicks, um, good kicks to the body, but his boxing is very, very clean and his hands are very sharp. And, uh, he has a good, Ground game, good jujitsu. He's got um, Darce chokes, anaconda chokes, and arm triangles, I believe, in his UFC career. So he can finish you off anywhere. He is a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He can finish you on the feet. He can finish you on the ground. Um, when it comes to Nico, the hybrid price, man, this guy's just a dog. I mean, he'll come at you from anywhere possible. He can finish the fights from anywhere. He could be losing the entire fight, and he will always find a way to win. That's one thing about Nico is he'll find a way. Even uh, he fought Jeff Neal. He lost the fight, but it was a war. He dropped him um, partially due to a headbutt, but he did hurt him and get on top and, you know, almost finish the fight against Jeff Neal. But Jeff Neal came out on top, but he just can, has the ability to draw opponents into a brawl. And when you draw into a brawl with Nico Price, it's usually not a good idea. And you're usually going to come up on the short end of the stick. But when you're talking about a guy like Vicente Luque, he is one guy I've seen in, in, in the UFC. 
who can get drawn into a brawl and still remain technical in the brawl. And I think that's a very important thing when you're going up against a guy like Nico Price who could finish it from anywhere with up kicks from the floor. He can finish it with hammer fists from his back. He can catch it with a, with a shot as you come in. He can catch it with knees up the middle. And uh, I think that it's it's very important when a guy can get into a brawl but still remain technical. And you saw that with Vicente Luque against Brian Barbarina. You saw it against Derek Krantz. You saw it against um, Bilal Muhammad. I mean, these guys were coming forward trying to put the pressure on him. And these guys have actually already fought before. That's one thing I didn't, you know, I didn't seem to mention was I believe Vicente Luque got the win via a second round submission in their first fight. So Vicente already, they've they've already fought before. So, you know, they're going to have an idea of what the opponent is like in the cage. Obviously, you have an idea of what they're like when you watch their fights, but it's different when you're in the cage with them. And uh, I just think when it comes down to it, Nico Price can finish it because, you know, like I said, we've seen Vicente Luque get drawn into brawls before and he could get caught with a knee or, or an overhand right or a high kick or something like that. But I think that Vicente Luque is too sharp to get caught into a a lazy brawl. That's one thing about Nico Price is, yes, he'll get into brawls, but a lot of his strikes are kind of just winging punches and winging kicks. And against a guy who's sharp, crisp, and technical like Nico Price, that doesn't have to, or like Vicente Luque, I'm sorry, that doesn't have to use a lot of wind-up in his shots and kind of can throw right from the hip and just turn the punches over, I think that that's going to be the difference. You know, when you throw a punch and it's a wide shot, it, it's more telegraphed and it takes longer for the shot to get to the opponent and get to the target. When you throw a punch or a kick or a knee and it's crisp and it's clean and there's no fat in the movement, it gets there quicker and there's usually more power in the shot. So I have to give the advantage to Vicente Luque. I think the first round and a half, two rounds of this fight are going to be unbelievable. I think that these guys are going to go for broke. I expect both guys to get hurt. Possibly both guys get dropped. But I think when it comes down to it, Vicente Luque is going to be able to land the cleaner shots in the brawl, and he's going to catch Nico Price slipping, drop him, and get a TKO. So I'm going to go with the silent assassin, Vicente Luque, to get the win via a third-round TKO. All right, let's keep it moving. Keep it moving. Up next, a very, very good fight in the middleweight division. You have the number 10 ranked Uriah Primetime Hall, who holds a record of 16 and 9 in professional mixed martial arts, versus ja Ronaldo Jacare Souza, who was formerly a top ranked middleweight, now ranked 14th in the light heavyweight division. He holds a record of 26 wins and 8 losses in professional mixed martial arts, and a record of 9 wins and 5 losses in the UFC. Um, this, this is a, a fantastic fight. You know, it was supposed to take place previously at UFC 249. It didn't work out, obviously, because the fight card got canceled. But this is a fantastic fight. And I think a lot of people are counting out Uriah Primetime Hall here just because of the, the competition that Jacare has fought. He has wins over former, former middleweight champion Chris Weidman, wins over Gegard Mousasi. He has a win over um, Derek Brunson. He has a lot of very solid wins in his mixed martial arts career, but when you look at a guy like Uriah Primetime Hall, he's on a bit of a win streak. I believe he's got two wins back-to-back, -back, one over Bevon Lewis. Um, then he lost previously to that, I believe, to Costa. Then previously, and then before that, he got a third round. I believe it was a third round KO over Christoph Jotko with a beautifully timed overhand right. And then just most recently, he has a decision win over Antonio Carlos Jr., where he looked absolutely fantastic. But you look at the guys he's fought and the guys he's lost to. I mean, he's fought Robert the Reaper Whitaker and had a very solid performance at UFC 193. He's fought 
um, Paulo Costa. He's fought a lot of guys. He fought Chris Weidman previously to uh, coming into the UFC. It's not talked about much. He was possibly going to fill in for Bisping at 199, you know, to fight Rockhold before Bisping got the call. I think they might have thro- were thinking about throwing Uriah Hall into that, you know, spot. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. But if I remember right, I think they were going to maybe throw Uriah Hall in against Rockhold. But against a, a guy like Jacare Souza, you know, he's on the downward spiral of his career. He's lost, I believe, three fights in a row, either two or three fights in a row. He lost to Jan Blahovich. He lost to, uh, let's see, actually, we can pull this up. Let's check it out. Hold on, guys. Ronaldo Souza's last fight. So he he lost to Jan Blahovich. He lost to Jack Hermanson. He uh, beat Chris Weidman at UFC 230, which was on uh, November 3rd, in a fantastic fight. He really down to the tooth and nail and uh, ended up getting the KO in the third round. And uh, we'll talk about a reason why he got the KO in that fight, and it was mainly the body work, his shots to the body with his hooks and uh, straight punches to the body and trying to rip up the liver was a big factor against Weidman, and I think that'll be a big factor against Uriah Hall. And then previously to that, he lost to... Um, Kelvin Gastelum, and then before that, he got a first-round KO over Derek Brunson. But when you look at Uriah Hall's last, you know, last few fights, like I said, I mean, he's got some very solid wins, and he's fought some very tough competition. I mean, he has a win over Antonio Carlos Jr. He has a win over Bevon Lewis, and then prior to that, he lost to Paulo Costa and by second-round KO due to the body shots, and then coming up top. Um, but even against Paulo Costa, his jab and his his jab is fantastic. He has one of the best jabs in mixed martial arts. It's just right. It's just no wind up, and it's so quick. It's just pop, 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 and he was you know blasting the face off of Paulo Costa with that jab. Um, but when it comes down to the fight, it's really who has the advantage on the feet versus who has the advantage on the ground and in the clinch. On the ground, you obviously have to give the advantage to uh, Ronaldo Jacare Souza. He has a, is a phenomenal Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, one of the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners in all of combat sports. And uh, if he gets on top of you, it's usually over. But you look at, you know, Uriah Hall, and a lot of so one thing that people don't really give him credit for is his ability and awareness to defend submissions and positions on the ground. He might not be the best at defending takedowns, but once you get him to the ground, he's very good at staying calm, staying patient, and defending against submission attempts from some of the top guys, including uh, Gegard Musasi. In the first fight against Musasi when he fought him in Japan and ended up getting the win in the second round with that spinning back kick to the head into the flying knee and then the, and then the ground impound, Musasi was able to take him down at will or take him down and tr- try to control him on the ground, but but Uriah Hall never stopped moving. He never stopped trying to get out of the get out of positions. And he even almost he used a Kimura grip to throw down Gegard Musasi and then transitioned his hips over into an armbar attempt and almost could have got it. It was very close. Um, and that's one thing. If you're going to do that to a guy like Musasi, yes, you look at Ronaldo Jacare Souza, him and Musasi are one and one. He uh, Musasi had a win via an upkick, I believe, in Dream. And then in the UFC, Ronaldo Jacare Souza got the win via guillotine choke. But, you know, I think that Uriah's jiu-jitsu defense is good enough to avoid submission attempts from Jacare. And on the feet, I think there's different areas in the striking game where each of these guys are good at. At, at range, at kicking range, 
you have to give the advantage to Uriah Hall. At punching and kicking range, you give the advantage to Hall. Yes, Jacare has improved his striking. He's made his punches are a lot cleaner. He can land good high kicks, good kicks to the body. Um, but he, the, but the best shot for Jacare is his body work. He has really, really made an effort to make to uh, invest in the body work and, and invest. It's almost you, you know, when you hit to the body, you're making an investment for later in the fight. If you rip to the opponent's liver or you rip to the body over and over and over again, it's going to take the wind out of the opponent. And you look at Uriah Hall, his loss to Paulo Costa. One of the main reasons he lost that fight was because Costa was ripping to the body before he ended up going up top to get the finish. And it was a shot to the body that hurt him and then boom, a shot up top. And uh, I think that Jacare is going to look to uh, implement that game plan against a guy like Uriah Hall. But at their current points in their career, I think Uriah Hall is at the best position he's ever been at in his career. And he trains at Fortis MMA with guys like Jeff Hansa, Steel Neal, and a few really a few other really good guys that that fight under the UFC brand. And I think that Uriah Hall is going to get the job done here. I think he has to avoid, he has to keep it at kick and punch range. He cannot get into a clinch range and get into a brawl. That's the, that, like I said, that's the, that's the area where Jacare has the most, the biggest advantage on the ground and in a clinch, in a clinch range slash, you know, where he can get into brawls and rip to the body, rip up top. But I think Uriah Hall's footwork, movement, and defensive awareness on the feet and his ability to stop takedowns. And even if he gets taken down, to avoid submission attempts with his good jujitsu defense, I think it's going to be enough for him to get the win over Jacare Souza. And I actually think he's going to get the win via a third round TKO. I believe in my previous predictions, I said second round, but I think that it's going to be a close fight. I think Jacare is going to get pieced up on the feet a little bit, but I think that he's going to be able to come forward and hurt Uriah Hall. I think Hall will get taken down, but he will get back up to his feet and be able to get back to the striking range that he wants to be at. Um, but I think that it's kind of going to play out to the first way to the way the first fight against Musasi did, where he shot a takedown, kind of telegraphed the shot, and got hit with a kick. I don't know if it'll be a spinning back kick. I don't know if it'll be a flying knee or a roundhouse kick. But I think that Musa, uh, I think Jacare is going to telegraph a takedown attempt and get caught with a knee or a kick coming in, get rocked, and uh, get finished via TKO in the uh, third round by Uriah primetime hall. And he will vault himself up to uh, get a top eight, top seven, top five opposition in his next fight. Up next in the women's strawweight division, we have the number seven ranked Carla cookie monster Esparza, who holds a record of 15 wins and six in MMA and six losses in MMA and six and four overall in the UFC going up against the number eight ranked, Karate hottie Michelle Watterson, who holds a record of 17 wins and seven losses in MMA and five and three overall in the UFC. Um, this is a good fight for the straw weight rankings. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on this fight because we have so many more fights to cover. But in, in all honesty, when it comes down to it, on the feet, it's Michelle Watterson's fight. On the ground and in the grappling, it's Cookie Monster Carla Esparza. And not may, not due to the jujitsu of Carla Esparza, but due to the wrestling control that she's able to establish against some of the top girls in the sport. She's gotten better on the feet, but you don't want to trade on the feet against a girl nicknamed the karate hottie and Michelle Watterson's kicks. Um, her kicking game is going to be a big factor against Carla Esparza. But what one thing with that is you have to look out for 
be the kicks getting caught and getting transitioned into a single or a double leg or maybe an outside or an inside trip. And then uh, Carla Sparza is going to be able to get on top and control you in the top position, land ground and pound, and eventually look to set up a submission or just you know pound you into oblivion. So I think that Michelle Waterson's going to have to be tricky with her kick setups, which you know she's very good at. She can throw anything: side kicks, round kicks, tornado kicks, you know, hook kicks, anything you got. Michelle Waterson can throw, but I think she's going to have to set it up with the punches. If she goes out and just tries to throw empty kicks, they're going to get telegraphed and they're going to get you know transitioned into a takedown and probably get caught by Carla Esparza. I do believe that in the clinch range, Michelle Waterson can get takedowns against Esparza, but I don't think she's going to want to put it in that position on the ground against a girl who's as decorated in the wrestling department as Carla Cookie Monster Esparza. But when it comes down to the fight, I expect it to be pretty close. I think uh, I think Carla will get a few takedowns, but I think Michelle Waterson will be able to get back up to the feet. Or if she does get taken down, it'll be close to the end of the round. So uh, Cookie Monster won't be able to get off as much um, striking and as much damage. And I think on the feet, Michelle Waterston's going to kind of just fight like a technical karate kickboxing, uh, point fighting type of fight. I think she's going to stay on the outside, slow a lot of side kicks, throw some jabs into roundhouse kicks and just stick and move. And I think that that's going to be a big factor and it's going to lead to the win for the number eight, eight, eight uh, the number eight ranked Michelle, the karate hottie, Michelle Waterston. So yeah, I think she's going to win via decision. I think, like I said, she's going to poke and prod, Keep uh, Carla Spars at a distance and get off enough damage to uh, win the fight on the cards. Up next in the heavyweight division, we have the number 12 ranked Boa Constrictor, Alexi Olinick, who holds a record, a very impressive record, of 58 wins, 13 losses, and one no contest in professional mixed martial arts, with a record of seven wins and four losses overall in the UFC. And he's going up against Fabricio Vicavalo Verdum, who's 23 wins, eight losses, and one no contest in MMA, and nine and three overall in the UFC. However, Fabricio Verdum has not fought since early 2018. So it's been almost two years or a little over two years, forgive me if I'm wrong, since we've seen Fabricio Verdum and it was due to a USADA drug test violation. Um, the boa constrictor, Alexi Olenek, like I said, he's had a lot more fights in his career, but in the UFC, he's seven and four. And uh, both of these guys' chins are suspect. You know, we saw Verdum get knocked out cold by Stipe, which isn't anything to be ashamed of. We saw him get knocked out by um, Alexander Volkov as well. Um, he he caught him with an uppercut, a couple uppercuts, and then jumped on him on the ground. Um, and Verdum has been knocked out. And uh, the boa constrictor, Alexi Olenek, he's not really that good on the feet. He's going to look to take you down. He's going to look to control you on the ground. And he's going to look to get a submission. And... Uh, Against a guy like Fabricio Verdum, who's one of the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners in all of combat sports and a very, very decorated Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, um, he submitted the last emperor, Fedor Emelianenko, handing him his first loss, and I believe it was might have been almost close to a decade or something like that before he got that loss to uh, Verdum via the triangle choke. But when it comes down to the fight, I think on the feet, it's obviously an advantage for Fabricio Verdum. I think that his... Uh, He's good enough on the feet with striking, obviously working with uh, 
Professor Rafael Cordero out of Kings MMA. His uh, Muay Thai has gotten pretty good. He's got really good knees, good work from the clinch, and good strikes from range, including kicks to the body and good punches overall. His striking game has really evolved once he got into the UFC. That's an that's a place where he's going to have a big advantage against a guy like Alexi Olenek. On the ground, I think I got to give the advantage to Alexi Olenek. Not to say Verdum isn't good on the ground and he can't lock up a submission. Either one of these guys can lock up a submission. And uh, I, I really, when it comes down to it, at first I picked Verdum. I just thought he was going to come back, look pretty good, and uh, get back into his groove and, you know, outstrike him on the feet, drop him, and hurt him and get a TKO. But when I thought about it, Verdum's been gone for two years. And if you listen to a guy like Dominic Cruz, who we're going to talk about in a little bit, you know, he says ring rust doesn't exist. But in the heavyweight division, I believe it definitely does. And, uh, you know, his chin's been a little suspect. I think Alexi Olenek's chin is a little worse. But I believe that he's going to be able to submit Fabricio Verdum just because of how long it's been since he's competed. In the heavyweight division, like I said, I think that ring rust means a lot. And him being gone for over two years and how much the heavyweight division has changed since he's been gone, I think that it's a, it's a big problem for Verdum. And I think he's going to get submitted. I think he's going to get caught in the uh, Ezekiel choke. I think that Verdum obviously has good enough defense to avoid a lot of positions on the ground or possibly, you know, submit Alexi Olenek. But I just think he's going to get caught in a weird position and Alexi Olenek is going to get that grip on him, squeeze and get the submission. And he might choke him unconscious. And uh, I'm probably going to, you know, shoot myself in the foot with this pick. But I'm going with the number 12 ranked boa constrictor Alexi Olenek to submit Fabricio Verdum in the uh, in the third round. I think Verdum's going to get tired, and I think Olenek's going to pick up the pace and uh, get it going. But that should be a good fight, and uh, I'm excited to see what Verdum looks like in his return. All right, we're going to move to the second part of this episode, and we're going to continue with the UFC 250 predictions. So I will see you on the next part, guys. All right, peace.